Welcome to Parenthood Pals. I'm Caleb Hoyer. And I'm Melissa Fight Johnson. And I'm very happy to have with us today an old friend of mine back from the NYU days, Max Palman. Welcome, Max. Welcome, Max. Hi, Caleb. Hi, Melissa. It's so great to be here. <laughs> it's great to have you. Great to yes. meet you. Where are you joining us from today? I am joining today from my bedroom in, in Bed-Stuy, <laughs> Brooklyn. I moved out here a few years ago, um, moved in with my boyfriend, and we've been working from home in this one-bedroom apartment for over two years now. It's great. <laughs> oh, you're still working from home? We're now like hybrid, but for a while it was... It was tight. Oh, wow. This this desk, I call it a desk. I'm sitting in a dresser where <laughs> I have taken almost every call, like just sort of sitting with my computer on a drawer that's been pulled out <laughs> for, for like two years now. This is like, I call it my standing desk, but it's my dresser. It's where I keep my clothes. Wow. <laughs> well, it's so good to see you. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about Team Palman? So I'm from Indianapolis, Indiana, originally. And a fun fact, besides the fact that I'm a twin, which Caleb, you already know, Melissa, I don't think you know that yet. <laughs> I love it. We are sort of the youngest in Team Palman by about nine years. So there's a healthy gap between me and my siblings. We were accidents. My mom likes to call it surprises. <laughs> but yeah, no, Team Palman's an interesting one. It, it's a half Jewish team. As I'm actually describing Team Palman, I'm realizing it's not that interesting. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's very normal. But um, no, my dad, my dad uh, grew up Jewish. My mom grew up Quaker. Okay, that's interesting. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, you're the first guest who's ever even said the word Quaker. So right there. Yes, it's... it's. You it's, know what? Yeah. It's, it's funny because like when you think of Quaker, I think you like I personally think of like either the Quaker Oats man or like... <laughs> I don't know, people like on a prairie, like with psalm books, I don't know. But no, it's it's very much like if I had to choose a type of Christianity to engage in, it would be the Quaker faith because all they do at church, and if you ever go to a Quaker funeral, you sit in the, the chapel or whatever, there's a microphone. When you feel like you're ready to talk, you talk. If you don't feel like you want to say anything, you don't say anything. It's not preachy. It's definitely like the most relaxed version of religion <laughs> that I've experienced. I love nice. that. Was Nixon a Quaker? <laughs> oh God, now you're going to make me take that back. <laughs> I don't mean to, I, I'm not trying to draw. I'm just trying to think of, you know, what Quakers do I know? Not that I know Nixon personally. <laughs> Caleb and Nixon go way back. <laughs> <laughs> That's my fun fact. <laughs> me um, and RMN. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> No, the only thing I really know about Quakers is that my favorite movie ever is Before Sunrise, and they talk about oh. a Quaker wedding in that movie. And it reminded me of what you just said about the funeral, and I always thought that sounded so beautiful. And so, yeah, or if you've ever seen um, Fleabag. Oh yeah, it's just the first few episodes. I should watch the rest. There is a scene where she goes to a Quaker. Um, I can't remember if it's a Quaker service. I forget what happens, but she but she ends up grabbing the microphone at, at like a Quaker service and saying something humiliating and embarrassing that she always does. <laughs> okay, so you and your sister are the youngest. How many older siblings do you have? So we're we're two of four. So I have an older brother and an older sister, and we were raised in the Jewish faith, despite my mom being a Quaker. So we were all you know bar and bat mitzvahed, and yeah, they're still my my parents are still in the same house I grew up in, wow. um, which I love. I think not being able to go back and have that home base would be 
a little sad, although I know it's going to happen someday. I'm glad I'm glad I can still go and be in the, the bedroom I grew up in. Well, that's very relevant to our episode today. I know. I was about to to get ahead of ourselves. I was about to say, um, if and when they do sell it, do you think you'll call your mom selfish like Crosby did? I'm just. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I mean, honestly, like, I think there's a little bit of Crosby in me. Oh, interesting. Because, I mean, obviously, they're getting old. Like, they're they're both turning 70 this year. This is sort of a milestone year for my parents. We're flying back to Indy in a month to do sort of like a joint 70th birthday for them. And it's a big house. You know, it's like five bedrooms like there's stairs it's they're both able-bodied but that time is going to come and I like to think that by then I will have evolved enough to not (laughs) accuse my mom of being selfish (laughs) we'll see I mean I you seem to me like you wouldn't but I would have expected more of Crosby as well so you never know (laughs) (laughs) well that leads us well to our final question which is what is your history with the show Parenthood Okay, so I binged it really quickly and kept up with it as as new episodes were coming out. And it was really like straddling my final year of college into like the year after I graduated college. So that was like 2011, 2012. And when I think about parenthood, I think about crying in every single, there was, there was not a single episode that did not at least once make me messed up, if not like openly weep. Yeah. So that's what I think about when I think of parenthood. It's tough because like I haven't watched it in so long. And when I think back to like the period of my life when I was watching it, you know, I just graduated college. I was trying to like find my footing as an actor at the time and, you know, dealing with that whole can of worms. And I was just in a very vulnerable place that yeah. I'm not experiencing that anymore. So actually don't know. I would like to watch the full series again to figure out if I still connect to it emotionally the way that it then, or if I just happened to be deeply a mess at the time. And that's what made me cry. <laughs> I honestly don't know. Well, I also want to mention, you know, usually when I have actor friends on, I'll uh, put in a, a clip of them after the fact singing. And Max works at Google now, but I met him when he was studying voice and acting and everything. And I particularly want to mention that when I was recording a little mini musical that I wrote, I had Max play the lead role because oh. of how gorgeous his voice is. Alana, where were the words? How could I say all that was in my heart? Forgive me, I was afraid. I didn't know how to tell you. Wow. Isn't that gorgeous? It's gorgeous. And you you two created that. Oh my god. Yeah. Well, let's be real. Like Caleb created it and I came in at the last second and did what he said. That score was so freaking beautiful. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I think he's like the most talented person I know. So there's that. <laughs> oh. And Max, this comes from an award-winning, <laughs> n- notable poet author. Oh, thank you. <laughs> there's just so much talent on this call, you guys. I mean, crazy. there really is. It'd be amazing if everyone could be like us right now. <laughs> I know. I don't know how other people manage. I know. It's sad for them. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can't wait to discuss this episode with you. Today, we are discussing Parenthood Season 5, Episode 18, The Offer. (laughs) I suddenly was like, 
thinking of like a hitman who was the <laughs> author that he offed people. That would anyway. be a different show. But, Very different. But maybe fun. Uh, okay, yeah. <laughs> I'd watch for sure. It was written by Sarah Watson, directed by Lawrence Trilling. It originally aired on March 20th, 2014. And here's the TV Guide synopsis. Joel fails to pick up Victor from baseball practice due to a misunderstanding. Sarah waits with bated breath for a response from the advertising agency. Amber persuades Drew to take control of his life, and Max has trouble understanding his classmates during a field trip. Now, as we mentioned about the selling the house and everything, and you know, the episode's called The Offer, I thought we would start with Zeke and Camille's ongoing plan to sell the house. From everything I've read about Berkeley real estate, Zeke and Camille's house would fetch a fortune because it would never exist <laughs> in Berkeley. <laughs> I do not say this as an expert, but I, just from everything I read, all that land, just you would never find that. And so let's say that it did somehow exist. I would imagine that would be an enormous selling point. There's three structures on the property, the house, the guest house, and the barn. It's secluded. And I even Googled, like, do Berkeley houses have yards or something? And I found this real estate listing from realtor.com. And it was homes for sale in Berkeley with big yard. And I'm just going to share my screen with Max and Melissa. <laughs> Sorry, listeners, you can't see. But this is what they say are big yards. Oh, my God. That's nothing. In Berkeley. Oh. Like, it makes Adam and Christina's house seem improbable, wow. let alone Zeke and Camille's. I'm yeah. sorry. Can you also just observe two bedrooms, $900,000? <laughs> right. Wow. Or this one down here, it's three bedrooms, two baths with a big yard. It's almost one and a half million dollars. And it's a foreclosure, I would like to point out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And their big yard is like room for one tree. Oh, wow. And that's the front yard. I don't know if there's a backyard. Okay. But anyway, it's just, it is, if that's a million and a half dollars, Zeke and Camille better be getting like $5 million for their house. Now, granted, we are discussing this in 2022. I wonder how much prices have gone up since. True. What was this, 2013? 2014. 2014. So. Still, yeah. And while we're just <laughs> fixating on <laughs> logistical details, did either of you notice that in the scene where Karen pops by, there's a piano in their living room? Now, there definitely used to be a piano in the attic, which famously got relocated to Crosby's houseboat. Yeah. Is this the same piano back in its original home? Or do they have two pianos, one in the living room and one that had been in the attic? I mean, they have two sinks. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but there's like the kitchen sink. And then there's that weird little room next to the kitchen that also has a sink. I've never noticed it's like, that. It's sort of like a butler's pantry or something, and there's a sink there. Huh. I mean, they can certainly afford two pianos, right? Apparently, with whatever money Zeke made from whatever career he had, which we've never found never out. Never in the That's whole time. That's what I was going to ask. Do we know what he did for a living? Does that get discussed? No. I think they only talk about him being, you know, a Vietnam veteran. And I, I don't think we ever find out. I don't think it I ever says. He had a star turn as, a, as an actor, but that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, maybe this is all those royalties from that. One Viagra <laughs> ad. Erectile, di erectile dysfunction commercial. <laughs> the closest I think we ever came to finding out was that he had invested in some property. Okay. In like season one. Yeah. Now, but I don't know. 
if that was what he did his whole career or if he did something in real estate. I mean, judging by his real estate acumen in this episode, I don't get the sense that he spent his career doing that. I'm also realizing that Karen, the realtor, said that this offer was cash. And if it's $5 million, who the hell is buying their house? Who are the, who's this couple? <laughs> Some shady character, <laughs> the offer. Well, you ask who is this couple. I do want to point out that the woman who was looking at the house is played by Lisa Canning, who, Melissa, I have to tell you, you may have recognized from her role in Scream. This is known to be the same costume worn by the killer. Oh my God. 17 year old Casey Becker and her boyfriend, Stephen Orth, have already lost their lives. Who's next? She was playing reporter with mask. I would never, <laughs> ever have like put that together and Scream's one of my favorite movies ever. That's so fun. Oh my gosh. I'm gonna have to watch her scene again. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> How did you figure that out? I always look at all the actors in a given episode to see if they were in Friday Night Lights because we have a Friday uh -huh. Night Lights alert alerting <laughs> us to any actors who appeared on that show. What's our scream alert going to be? Red Right Hand by Nick Cave? <laughs> <laughs> oh, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Max, but do you need any refreshing on like where we are in the Zeke and Camille selling the house. Now it's, it's coming back to me and I vaguely remember being on Zeke's side here. Oh, I, I, see that's... I felt like Camille sort of backed him into a, a corner a little bit. Like, I don't think she was wrong. I just think the way that she went about, like she could have worked with him on it instead of like offering him an ultimatum essentially. Cause right, she was gonna like go to Italy. She wanted to keep traveling. Um, right. Yeah, she went to Italy and then she was gonna go to France and she was That's just right. kind of making it clear, well, this is the kind of life I wanna lead. I wanna travel. I don't wanna be tied to a house. And you've said that you've already traveled and you don't wanna do those things. So I guess I'll just do them on my own and you can be in the house. And that's yeah. kind of, yeah. But I'm fascinated by this and, and also by you saying that you have a little Crosby in you because we have been largely, I think, on Camille's side. And this is great because I like, you know, disagreement, not in a like chaotic way, um, but it's fun when someone has a different viewpoint. Well, my viewpoint is also almost 10 years old and <laughs> probably not informed by what actually happened on the show at this point. It's it's stewed and congealed to the point where I probably am misremembering it. But the more important question is, did we ever see any of Camille's watercolors? <laughs> like, I, here and there, that, you'll, it's a you'll see over her shoulder, you know, what she's working on. And they always look like figure. What <laughs> <laughs> if she was really bad and just no one was... Calling her on it. Oh. Like, you're going to go to France to do that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, it's strange. You know, I, I have been more on Camille's side, too. And yet I think there is a kernel of truth in you and Crosby's attitude of, like, she kind of backed him into a corner. I don't think she ever meant to do that. And I'm not sure there's any way she could have pursued what she wanted without that being the result, at least as long as Zeke was going to react the way that he did, Yeah, which was just so obstinate. Absolutely not. I'm not even going to talk about it. I think there's also like something that I don't fully understand about like the boomer generation and how like I think of my mom a lot when I think of like this storyline 
in that like she also was only ever a mom that was what she devoted her life to she didn't have the career her choices were sort of informed by what her husband thought was best for the family and and she was sort of game to to play along with whatever and later in life like as i've seen her get older i've seen her sort of start to rebel in little ways more and more and more and you know start to advocate for her needs in a way that sometimes feels unreasonable and like a little bit overkill but it's sort of like this response to you know years of sort of saying yes building up and i think that's women of that generation shared that experience in, in a lot of ways and, and camille was no no exception that's really insightful wow. yeah you know though this is interesting i just happened to see on Facebook earlier today. I hope it's okay to, to mention this. I won't name names, but someone I know, he and his wife just were married for 50 years today. And he made this very sweet post with like pictures from their wedding and they were beautiful pictures. And he made a joke about how the only part of the vows that she hadn't quite lived up to was the part about obeying him. And, he, oh, and, and I think he meant that as funny like no one would expect that now but 50 years ago that wasn't even in the standard vows she like wrote her own vows and like wrote i will obey you i guess in them Whoa. yeah which wow. i was like i would never <laughs> you know and and uh it was just a really interesting little time capsule moment i thought and it was kind of interesting for him to you know be reflecting on that all these you know decades later but yeah, it makes me think of that. Like, I wonder to what extent someone like Camille felt like it was literally part of her vows to obey whatever her husband wanted. And maybe you shake that off, you know, with some time. And you're like, why did I live like that? Well, everyone did. It was what was expected. Yeah. It's, yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, far be it from me to give voice to a whole generation of women. But, <laughs> but to, <let's> pre <laughs> to present another side of it. Yeah. I think for a lot of those women, it probably was a very comfortable mm -hmm. choice. And and I, I guess the debate comes into if something is so much an expectation, to what degree is it even a choice? Yeah. But let's just, let's say that it is. If someone is more comfortable sort of ceding control and hence a lot of responsibility to one spouse and trusts that person and that person doesn't abuse that... I can see where it it might be nice to know who the head of the household is and then know that you're sort of the second in command. I remember my grandmother, my dad's mom, at least once there was a story I heard about um, one of the kids being disciplined. My grandpa had been really harsh on them and my grandma then was comforting them. And I said, why can't dad just be nice like you? And she said, well, I don't have to be a disciplinarian because he does that. I'm able to just be sweet and comforting. If he didn't do that, I would have to pick up some of that slack. Mm. And I think that is maybe an example of the roles people play. And yep. if everyone's okay with them, I don't necessarily think there's a problem with them. But That's interesting. you know, what do you do when you get later in life and realize maybe I don't want to play this role anymore? Yeah. Then there's some renegotiating to happen. And isn't it interesting to compare that to like 
the sitcoms of like the 90s and Crosby and Jasmine, who this season have been like sitcom characters from the 90s, where it's like reversed almost, where the wife has to be like the nag and the one who makes sure everyone is doing what they're supposed to be doing. And the dad gets to be super fun time and, you know, the one that the kid just gets to hang out with. And the, the mom is often resentful of that role that she has to play. And so it's interesting how maybe in some ways they've like shifted over time yeah. in traditional households anyway. Yeah. Well, Zeke and Camille get the eponymous offer and Zeke initially is like, ah, no, we shouldn't do that. And Camille wisely is like, let's <laughs> not decide right now. Yeah. They have the three days. Let's discuss their later conversation about it and Camille's decision. What are we going to do? I don't know, I don't know. I mean, I still want to sell, that hasn't changed, but I mean, it's just so fast. (laughs) Now we have Crosby and his family living here. I don't know. Victor's counting, I'm finishing that car with you too. I'd hate to take that away from them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the offer came in pretty quick. I guess there might be others, but, you know, there's no guarantee, is there? So you think we should take it? Millie, I want what you want. I went away. put it on the market in three or four months the way we originally planned to do when we're ready it's a nice fire isn't it So this was more compromise, I felt like, than we've seen between them up to this point and more of a conversation than we've seen them have about selling the house. Although I feel like the subtle art of that is still a little bit lost on Zeke. He's either like my way or the highway or whatever you want, Camille. That's true. (laughs) At first when he was like, well, you know, there may be other offers. I thought this is a really good sign because in the first scene in this episode, He says, no, we don't take it. We put it on the market. We wait for full asking. And now here he's saying, well, maybe we wouldn't get another offer. You never know. Like now that is you trying to see it from another point of view, which is genuine compromise, I think. But then he very quickly just lets it up to her, which is there are worse things, especially from him. But like, well, that's not what she wants. I genuinely don't think. No, she wants a real conversation. Yeah, she doesn't. She doesn't want him to say either of those things, my way or the highway or whatever you want, dear. She wants give and take both. Yeah. 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 No, I, had a, I had a really negative reaction to him saying, I think he's, I want what you want. Yeah. First of all, I don't think that's, it hasn't been the case for your entire marriage. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, why now, buddy? <laughs> yeah. But that aside, what did you think of 
her decision. I'll be really honest. It's hard for me to put aside my li- just my little bit of bitterness um, because my house, when we sold it, Mark and I, um, in 2018 and moved to Lawrence, it took seven months to sell and we had to go like way below asking. And for a while we, we owned two homes, like we're rich people and we're not, it was uh, very difficult to manage, but we're lucky that we were able to manage it. So sometimes when there's like a dilemma, I use air quotes like this, <laughs> like someone sweeps in and wants to pay you apparently millions of dollars cash. And you're like, let's wait. <laughs> you know, like it was hard for me to be like, well, just, yeah, you don't know. You should just take the offer. That's what I would do. <laughs> but, <laughs> but then I tried to put myself in their position and think about it. And I guess for them, assuming they get more offers, it's good to do things on your own timetable, like when you're ready and not feel rushed. You know, if, if it's not the right time, then it's not the right time. What about you guys? I don't know. I'm I'm very much the person in the relationship who's like, there'll never be a right time. Who cares? Let's do like I I even with the dog. It was we had a conversation about, well, you know, what if, you know, he doesn't, you know, bond with us, or what if there's, you know, we're coming, we have travel coming up, this is happening, this is happening. And I was always the person who was like, there's never gonna be a right time. We just have to do it. And as I was listening to that conversation with Zeke and Camille, I think if I were was it Camille or Zeke who was like who was talking about how um, Crosby and Jasmine are living there in the car and I think my response to all of that would have been like there's always going to be stuff like that going on when when is there ever not going to be something happening that could be a reason for us not to do this that's how I approach it what's interesting is Camille is the one who said those things but she's the one who wants to move the most so I wonder if she was trying to like maybe be con- like maybe she was trying to do the compromise thing and have a real conversation about it and not just insist mm-hmm. on what she wanted, but really try to take Zeke into consideration, I think. Well, and that's how I read it. And thus I found that scene really touching. Yeah. Because I thought her decision was so respectful yeah. of Zeke. I, like I genuinely think she thinks it's fast. Like, mm-hmm. what, like I don't think she was expecting them to get an offer. Well, how could she? That's not even on the market yet. <laughs> fantasy um, land fantasy <laughs> but i also think she could get there yeah. and be totally okay with it mm-hmm. but i i felt like she knows that if she did that then this thing that is difficult for her husband will always feel like something that was sprung on him yeah and i think she cares about him and doesn't want to put him in that position i'm like that is really respectful of your partner who in a lot of ways has not earned respect on this topic up to now you know he's been so digging in his heels about it but he came around and i think that deserves to be acknowledged and she is and it's like that's really nice and it's something i included that last line about the fire pit because i might be reading way too much into this but you know zeke built the fire pit and he mentions in this episode he built the barn that that wasn't there for all we know, he built the guest house too. And maybe they've referred to that before. I can't remember. But a lot of this property and what makes it so special has been through his hard work and presumably his money, since I don't think Camille was working or at least not full time. And for her to then say like, it's a good fire pit, I felt like was her saying, you have built a beautiful home here and me wanting to get rid of it is not me saying I don't care about what you've 
put into this place. I don't care about what you built. I don't care about your barn. I don't care about your fire pit. Which maybe is how he was feeling some of her eagerness to unload the place. Wow. Even though I feel like she has said up to now, I love this. I'm going to hear the scene where she says all of what you just said. (laughs) I don't care. Screw this. (laughs) You know, I thought that maybe the fire pit line was there for another reason, because it's interesting. She says it twice. The first time we didn't hear, because it was before the, the clip you played. And he admits he should have built the fire pit like 30 years later. It's so interesting because he built the fire pit this season and it was just, you know, his attempt to make them stay. Like, I'll just keep making this place cooler so you won't want to leave. And I thought this scene had some really interesting moments of Zeke, I don't know, maybe admitting that he had put what he wanted above what Camille wanted throughout their marriage because not only like i mean not only lying to her about the tree disease the tree disease yes (laughs) i mean god the 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 fact that they're just reminiscing about how she loved this tree i remember the tree and it got that horrible disease oh it broke my heart and he's like yeah i just lied about it so i could build the barn there and like i mean i'm and cut your beloved tree down yes and i'm like I could not tell. I genuinely could not tell if that line, like that whole little moment was in the episode to be funny or horrifying or both, like a little of both. I really wasn't sure, but I thought, yeah, okay. So the fire pit he built with selfish motivations so he could get what he wanted. They also mentioned the the tree, which he cut down for selfish motivations. You can say he's doing it for both of them, but really he was doing it for himself. And so the car that she said, you know, I don't want to leave until the car is done. She never wanted that car there in the first place because she felt like it was a, a purchase of his to keep them there. Yeah. The fact that she's yeah. now. Yeah, I think you're probably right about that must be why those things were included. I mean, yeah, I think it's very big of her to now be saying, we got to wait for the car to be finished. I don't want to take that away from Victor because she was in the initially she's like, you bought this just so we wouldn't leave. And yeah. And so I think you're right. I mean, I think it's all there. I think it's everything. I think you're totally right that she is acknowledging you put work into this place. But some of that work wasn't really for the family. It was it was what he wanted. I'm doing a full 180 on, on which <laughs> side. <Yep. laughs> I'm not Camille now. It's fascinating. I mean, really, truly, Caleb and I keep talking about, like, what a weird thing to have these memories of what we thought and then, like, watch it again. And then we, what we wonder is, like, have we changed? It must be us, you know, or the world changing. You know, like, what makes you change your opinion on something unattached from your life you know it's not like we've changed our opinion on our own stuff it's this show but the show doesn't change i guess just our reaction to it does anyway i mean not to mention the real thing we should be talking about is how ill-advised it is to have a fire pit in northern california (laughs) 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 oh man yeah that's a good point. It's funny that this is one of the season long storylines that I think is the best because it feels so real, but not so real that it's completely mundane. And like, why would we ever want to watch a storyline about this? But I think a couple their age that had this kind of property, gosh, that is a lot to maintain. And they probably would be looking at selling it. And what does that mean for each of the people? And what kind of discussions and disagreements does that lead to? And 
And it dredges up this whole history of I've always bent to you. I've always done what you wanted. When is it my turn? There's so much in there. Whereas some of the other storylines that have been going on all season, I think, do not have the uh, depth of that. Drew and Natalie. <laughs> Ooh, I could not care less. <laughs> I mean, I really kind of couldn't either. I will say I am more on Natalie's side than I was after her confrontation with Drew. Hey. Hey? What, that's all I get? No love for a successful stalking mission? Yeah, you found the one class we don't have together. I'm very impressed. Drew, that. come on. I'm here at 8 a.m. for peace talks. 8 a.m., seriously, who takes an 8 a.m. class? It's absurd. But I'm here at oh dark 30, because I miss you. What, seriously? A shrug, that's all I'm gonna get from you? Yes, You're not even I'm gonna talk to you. me? pissed at you. You're not even gonna acknowledge what's happening? You're pissed at me. Okay, hey, hurt I get. Hurt I can, I can live with, but you don't get to be pissed at me for this. Did you slept with my friend? Your friend? Yeah. Seriously, you barely tolerate Birdo. Hey, He's you not your friend. slept with Birdo. That's worse. Okay, wait, let me just get this straight. My big crime is that while we were very clearly not together, I slept with somebody that you just accidentally happened it's to live so with. It's so different. You slept with Birdo. Really mature, Drew. Come on, at least own up to it. Amy came to town and you dropped everything. You dropped school, you dropped your friends. You sure as hell dropped me. Okay, good talk. Glad we sorted all that out. And again, so sorry I slept with somebody that you kinda sorta knew, my bad. This is coming back. What is also coming back is what a horrible communicator Drew is. Oh, interesting. He <laughs> cannot articulate a thought to save his life that does seem kind of like maybe apropos for the age and you know like it like just Mm -hmm. a hard time saying how you feel and getting it out there and i think with him he's not even sure he should feel the way he does like i wonder if he listens to natalie and is like she's got a point but he doesn't want to think that (laughs) you know it's hard yeah it's hard for me to separate my opinion as an outside observer from Yes, what I think a 19-year-old or maybe 18-still-year-old yeah. guy would think and feel. Because I, I was more, like I said, I was more on Natalie's side in this episode than I have been up to now. And I was already very open to her side. I think Drew is being a little ridiculous. Although I still think Natalie is being disingenuous about why she slept with Birdo. Even in this scene, she seems very hung up on being dropped for Amy. Yeah. And I remember when Amy arrived, she was very territorial. And that I kind of didn't understand either. I'm like, Drew wanted a relationship with you and you didn't. You don't get to be territorial with him. You don't get to be threatened by another woman in his life because you had your chance and you seeded it. Yeah. But I'm like, I might also be biased because I and we, the viewers, know the full extent of what Amy was dealing with. Yeah. That's true. And so for Natalie to be like, why aren't you talking to me? It's like, I'm sorry that my suicidal girlfriend was having PTSD over the abortion that she had less than a year ago and that I couldn't be around whenever you wanted me to. Person who doesn't want a relationship with me. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Right. And yeah, but go ahead, please make this all about you. Yeah. But Natalie doesn't know that. And 
you know, so maybe that's unfair. To me, it still feels like she was trying to get back at him and Nuberto would make him mad. And it occurred to me now, if that's the case, which we don't know, but if it is, then the issue of how she used Berto to do that, I think is super thorny. Yeah. Like you don't sleep with someone to make someone else angry because then Berto, she's just treating him like an object. Sweet little Berto with his cashew butter. I mean, you know, it's just, (laughs) anyway. (laughs) I feel like this happens in TV shows a lot. Like the construct of somebody sleeping with somebody to get back at somebody else is so common. I cannot think of a single person in my life or even a person who knows a person who has ever encountered this situation of like (laughs) sleeping with somebody for revenge. There are so many other ways to tell someone how you feel or like get back at someone that don't involve sleeping with someone you don't like. Yeah. But it seems to come up in TV shows and movies all the time. And I, I just don't know why. You're right. That's it, true. It does feel like the go-to for, for drama. <sighs> yeah. And maybe I'm reading too much into it. Because like as you pointed out last episode, Melissa, when it was revealed that she slept with Berto, she did it in her apartment. And it did seem like kind of an accident that Drew just happened to knock on the door then. So it may not have been her aim that she wanted him to find out. It it didn't seem like it. It's so hard to know. And this might be the world's least helpful comment. And I'm about to go (laughs) off on a total tangent. So if either of you have more things to say about the actual storyline as it is, please stop me now. I wish that Drew's freshman year, as it was portrayed on television, could have been wildly different than it was. I And I kept thinking, I wonder when Miles Heiser in real life came out. Like, was he out when these episodes were on? Do you, do you, do you happen to I know? I don't know. I, I don't think he was, because I feel like I would have known at the time. Ah, uh, that makes sense. Well, and, you know, this is maybe a ridiculous thing to say, but just knowing that he's gay in real life... I just kept thinking about him and like how much more interesting it would have been if like Drew goes to college and starts to figure out that he's gay. And like, you know, instead of this just like really, I'm sorry, inane storyline. It's maybe my least favorite of the whole series. Like this him and Natalie, will they, won't they? I'm like, oh, wow. The extent to which it's hard to care. Like, I just don't. I just thought... Boy, and it doesn't have to be him figuring out he's gay, but I just thought, what else could he have done that would have been more, like, of substance, if that makes sense? Like, just something that would have been not just kind of, like, silly girl trouble. I don't know. Like, what Amy experienced, you know? Like, we've talked about she came back for a few episodes struggling with depression and, and, you know, I mean, that's something I'm not saying everything has to be big, big stakes and everything, but it's just such a time college of like figuring out who you are. And I feel like they could have really mined that for some rich stuff. And it just feels like such a wasted opportunity with this silly little storyline. I don't know. Or even the drama of figuring out what you're interested in. Yes. You know, I weirdly can't relate because I had a very strong idea of what I wanted to do, but that is not the norm for 18 year olds. Yeah. And like, I think of like my sister Jay, who is like literally a genius, I think IQ level. She is. And she started college as a Spanish major because she kind of wasn't sure what she wanted to go into. And then after like a year of that, she realized, no, not Spanish. 
and switched to graphic design and got her degree in graphic design. And then very quickly after graduating and like applying to jobs as a graphic designer, realized this is not where my passion and real interests lie. And here I just got a degree in it. Her, you know, her problem was she was so capable. She could do anything. Anything. Yeah. That it was almost like I need some deficiencies to help <laughs> narrow down what I want to do with my like life. Like me. I was only good at English. Of course I became an English yeah, teacher. Yeah, and me. Like, uh, it's going to be music. <laughs> yeah. Something or other, you know. Yeah. And you know, all we know up to now that Drew expressed in one episode a slight interest in biology. Yeah. Now, what if he was a biology major? We have no idea what his major is. Right. But let's say he was a biology major and was going to classes and going, this is dull as dirt. This is not what I want to do. But I'm the first person in my family to go to college. Right. I bet I better know what I want to do. I can't just be wasting this time. Or their money. I, they're poor. You know, Sarah yeah. doesn't have much. That's way better. Yeah. Or, 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 you know, I was, this might not apply to him, but I was very far from home and I was really lonely the entire year of freshman year. Yeah. Which is not to say I didn't hang out with people and didn't kind of make friends but I could tell they were not going to be long lasting friendships. And it was like, do I belong here? I, I don't know. I, I was very nervous to go back the second year. You're, you're so right. There's so many more interesting things. And parenthood often is good with that kind of stuff of finding the kind of unexpected angle on something. Yeah. Not just no oh, romance problems. And I should mention, I think it was between seasons four and five. Jason Kadams came out, not as gay, um, (laughs) but in response to viewers saying, would you ever have a gay character on the show? And I think he teased, yeah, that's something we're going to be exploring in the upcoming season. Because I remember thinking, is it going to be Drew? And then it wasn't. It would have been. Because he sort of seemed like the most natural person. I mean, Amber was engaged the first half. It's like, well, it's not going to be Amber. I doubt it's going to be one of the siblings. Yeah. And I mean... The reason I asked about Miles Heiser is it's like bonus if you get, I mean, if you have an actual like gay person playing the character, then it's like representation too. You know, you're not like kind of being like exploiting something as much, which sometimes like if it's a a woman and it's, I remember the OC, it was like, <laughs> tune in to watch Olivia Wilde make out with, oh, I can't remember, Misha Barton. And it was like, ugh, it, it was just, <laughs> you know, and Misha got, Barton was like, you know, just exploring herself for like three episodes and then was back to dating boys. And I was like, that's not a good gay storyline. That's real yeah. gross. Yeah. Well, and even if he hadn't been gay per se, because I'm realizing now, I don't know if I've ever heard Miles Heiser specifically identify as gay really i think i just know that he's dated men and like is currently dating okay that's good to know and may whitman as well uh, not too long ago i think came out as pansexual okay so even seeing drew like what if drew got hit on by a guy and like was not turned off by the thought yeah and then had to entertain oh i i thought that i was just attracted to women but maybe i'm attracted to men too it doesn't have to be like right Either or. A straight down the line, <laughs> yeah. yeah, either or sort of gay realization. It yeah. Could be a, oh, I'm open to more than I thought I was. But no, I'm just going to go back and forth and get butt hurt that <laughs> <laughs> this girl <laughs> slept with my roommate who I don't like. And, 
Yeah, and I felt almost ridiculous bringing it up because now we have been talking for a long time about a storyline that does not exist. This is just fan fiction that I have inserted <laughs> into the show. But I think I just wanted to say like just how disappointed I think I was. And it's a rare thing with parenthood. And I don't mean to, you know, what do I know? I've never created a TV show. Uh, it's hard to come up with ideas, but I just felt like ugh, what a disappointing one that really has not much to do with furthering Drew as a character where he's like figuring out something about himself, whether, you know, it's sexuality or a career or or something. It's just, I'm in it. Will they, won't they? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, and then I want to ask a question about him and Amber. It's time to get up, man. Why do I need to get up? Because it's class. It's your one Natalie free class today. Oh my gosh. Get up. I'm not going to my class. You have to go to your class, Drew. It's too late. I already missed it. Drew, it's not too late. You have to go. Look, I haven't been making you do anything, okay? So the one thing you have to do is go to your one class. I'm going to make you go to your one class that Natalie's not at. I can make you. It's my apartment, and you have to go, Okay. okay? Thank you. It's very bright. Jeez. Drew? Stop being such a baby oh and go God. to your class. I don't want to go to class, okay? I don't want to see Birdo and Natalie. I don't want to think about that, please. She's always asking me if I'm okay. It's incredibly annoying, all right? I'm sad. I'm sad about Amy, and I want to smoke weed and write bad songs. True, of course, I'm sorry. I, I understand. Here. I'm sorry that I yelled at you. No, it's okay. I'm sorry I poured water on you. Just go back to sleep, okay? I just didn't know. So my question was this. Is it always best to be supportive? You know, like, is it good that Amber was like, oh, I didn't know. Never mind. Go back to sleep. I mean, I believe Drew when he says he's sad and I feel for him. But I got to say, his reaction seems disproportionate to me he's effectively moved out and not gone to class for like a week because of this. And maybe I'm being too harsh and just listening to it now, I realized it seems significant too, that he says he's sad about Amy. He doesn't say he's sad about Natalie and Birdo, although he does say he doesn't want to see them. Yeah. And I thought, okay, I give you more leeway being sad about Amy. Cause that's, that was actually, intense. yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> I'm sure it's not helpful to tell someone going through something like, this is actually not as big of a deal as you think it is. <laughs> like, that's not ever a good strategy. Oh. But didn't Amber, I feel like she deeply, like, relates to this idea of, like, screw the world. Like, I'm just going to sort of burrow in my sadness hole and shut everyone out. So, like, in that way, I can sort of understand her 180 on, like, you do you, man, because she's been in Drew's shoes. She, she's gone through the angst journey herself and, and she gets it. That's very true. Yeah. I think that is why she changes her mind. You know, I think, I think what he says probably resonates with her. Um, and so that's probably why she changes tactics, but I thought she was right in her original tactic of just like tough love, uh, which I don't mm-hmm. think is always the the way to go. But I think in this case, this isn't tenable. I mean, I, it's weird. I had such a different reaction to Drew smoking pot last episode when it was like sort of a bonding thing with Amber and they were both just sad and they were like, let's cheer ourselves up. But I'm like, oh no, now he's doing it every day instead of going to class. And now it feels like he's letting, you know, not even a real relationship with Natalie, you know, or whatever it is, he's letting these things have potentially a really 
bad effect on the rest of his life. I mean, if he fails his classes, I mean, this is, yeah. So I, I just, I don't know. I think if I were Amber, I'd be really worried about him and I would try some tough love as well. And, you know, go, going back to like our fan fiction wishes, <laughs> yeah. I remember college, not my freshman year, but my junior year being the first time in my life I ever felt like I really experienced depression mm. because I was like, I'm really sad and unmotivated. And I look around at what's happening in my life and none of the things seem to explain it. Like, it's not that I'm upset about this thing that happened. Nothing happened. I'm just upset. Yeah. And I thought, oh, this is what depression is. And now I should say I'm not clinically depressed as far as I know, and I didn't get a diagnosis then. So I think it was just a bout of very common depression. But I would be interested in watching a storyline of Drew realizing, oh, I'm depressed. How yeah. do I handle this? Yeah. And then maybe that's what this is, but they seem to be tying it so specifically to this situation that I'm like, well... That's the problem. Resolve that and you'll be fine. Yeah. You think if they made this episode today, the conversation would be different? Because I feel like the the way we understand depression has evolved so much in the past even five to seven years. Yeah. That there's, I think, more room for, for ambiguity. And I'm wondering if they would explore that a little bit deeper if if they made the show today. I hope so. Because I think, yeah, there, there would be a lot more to say and... A storyline like that could really, I think, help people watching, too, like who could relate. And they're very good at hard-hitting stuff. I mean, I actually think maybe the problem is the parenthood might not be as good with the light stuff. You know, I think maybe this is meant to be some of the lighter stuff to, like, counterbalance some of the heavier stuff. And I just, Mm. I don't know. This storyline did result in Drew and Amber singing his song together. I should say Miles Heiser wrote that song. Really? He tweeted about it the night after the episode aired and said, I wrote that song. He's also very clearly actually playing that guitar. I have to say, I thought the song itself was not great. (laughs) (laughs) But as a moment, I thought it was wonderful. And the thing I was most struck by about it was how long the show stayed in that moment. Yeah. I and mean, that was like a good minute and a half or two minutes of just hearing him play this song. If this was the first season of the show, I'm not sure they could have gotten away with that and mm-hmm. spending that much time in it because we just wouldn't know them well enough to care. Like, I don't need to hear him play this whole song. Who gives a shit? But <laughs> five seasons in, we've spent so much time with both of them. And seen them together and apart, that this felt very meaningful. And I mean, I would found myself thinking about Seth a lot during this scene. And I'm like, gosh, they they both have this musical inclination. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from their dad. We know that. They don't like their dad very much, but he gave them this. And this is a way that they are connecting that's so special. I mean, there's all this significance to it that is only earned through all of that time. Yeah. It was so beautiful. I I think I really liked the song um, for a few reasons. Like, I don't know if I technically liked it, but I really liked that moment so much that I thought this feels like a song an 18 year old kid would write. And I liked that, that it didn't feel like something, 
even though I didn't know he wrote it, I, I, I appreciated that it felt very authentic. It didn't feel like some polished thing that they told him to sing. And I, I really, I love that so much. <laughs> I also couldn't help but be so struck by their chemistry. And I don't mean to be like <laughs> crazy, but we made all those jokes about Sarah and Adam because they're, you know, a couple in real life. And I know that in real life, aren't Mae Whitman and Miles Heiser like best friends? Um, and don't they like, they? yes. Well, and at the time of this, in the series, I think they were roommates I, yeah. in real life. Yeah. And so like, it's so... F- sweet to watch them together and i think i think quite believable that a brother and sister would love each other that much and be so cuddly and everything but i also was just like man your chemistry is electric and it's a little funny like when you i mean just she's like lean you know she's like holding him and she's like i'll pick up where you you know i'll I'll start singing too and i'm like drew just give up both of these women and here's amber that would be another no (laughs) you're right i can't there's a story there's a story (laughs) that's hard hitting that's hard hitting i'm sorry it felt okay to joke about adam and sarah since they were a couple in real life that was wrong i i apologize i take it back i take it back okay i'll go anywhere (laughs) i just i obviously don't really want that to happen on the show but i was really like almost taken out of the moment just by the chemistry but i like everything caleb said much more that was very sweet and i'm wrecking it <laughs> you heard it here first folks melissa has taken a stand on incest oh, no. she's against it i am i am <laughs> i don't I'm think it's a good yeah erase this by saying that I, what i remember being so touching about like this moment i think in in the show's overarching storyline was sort of like seeing amber assume like a parent role yeah. for a little bit it was just funny to see her you know, the lines she would use on him about, you know, you have to go to class, you know, being concerned about his future, sort of being like a callback to the nagging that Sarah was using Aww. on her when she, you know, sort of off the rails a little bit. And well put. I was, I remember being very touched by seeing her assume that role for him and, and being concerned about, you know, his future. That's a very good point. That's beautiful. You guys are the best. I'm a monster. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to read that fan fiction, though. (laughs) Yes. I will say, I mean, all, you know, kidding and theorizing aside, Drew and Amber do remain one of my favorite, like, duos on the show. I mean, they are so precious, and I've, I've always loved them, so. I did weirdly feel like last episode and this one, I'm sure I'm not right, but it felt like almost the first time that Drew has ever smiled in the whole series. Oh, wow. Like teeth showing, like when they were high in the last episode and it's like, maybe grandpa died. He's like, what? But he's like (laughs) smiling while he says it. And I'm sure that he has smiled before in the series, but maybe it's just now like the dimples have really come in. And I don't know. I was like, gosh, you've got a great smile. Why don't you smile more? And then I felt like a guy on the street cat calling a woman. <laughs> smile for me. I like it. It makes me feel better. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I I also like his smile. I never thought of that before, but you're right. I mean, he's always been so quiet and... Meek. Yeah. It's nice to see him kind of come into his own. I do like that very much yeah well we mentioned sarah let's shift to sarah in this episode i felt like a lot of the storylines in this episode plot wise not much was happening 
but they all had moments of real significance. And Sarah's, I thought, maybe the most of like, there's nothing happening here. She's just waiting to hear and is nervous. Yeah. That's the storyline. Yep. But here was the moment of significance that I thought cropped up within all the nervous waiting. While she's nervous, Hank is trying to comfort her and touches her. And the moment is a little more intimate, I think, than they were expecting it to be. Hank. I mean, you looked disgruntled. You looked like no, you're stressed yeah. out. You're stressed I out. Am. It's like I, you needed I am. to just. I, I forget, know. Forget it. Work no, yourself thank up. You. Work thank yourself you. into a little tizzy. I just, I don't, I don't want to give you the wrong idea, cause. No, we're good. We're good. You're not giving me the wrong idea. Okay. No, we're not. We're not. We're not good. I do. I do have the wrong idea. What do you mean? There's a million Bravermans out there, right? Every corner. There's a Braverman. They're like Starbucks, the Bravermans. But you come here, you come to me every time. Why? Why? I'm getting the wrong idea. I got the wrong idea. Because you come in here and you're vulnerable, you're, you're needy. And I, I, I want to be there for you because I, because I, I want to be here. And, and it seems like you want me to be here. I do, I do, as my friend, you know? <laughs> I mean, I, that sounds oh, so- Oh, yeah, all right, okay, okay. Uh, friends. No, but. Yeah. Oop, oop, oop. Oh. What does that mean? Sarah, can you meet me tomorrow at four, Alec? <laughs> what does that mean? What does that mean? Do you think it's bad? I can't be here for you anymore, Sarah. It's hard, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's confusing. I just don't want to do it anymore. This is not about what's happening in that moment specifically, but because there's something about just those two actors and them being associated with two very iconic roles. Oh yeah. That truly all I hear in that interaction, especially in that little like, sort of shriek she does is like Lorelai Gilmore talking to Ray Romano. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I felt very torn in that scene because on the one hand, he does not use this phrase, by the way. I'm not trying to accuse him of saying something he doesn't, but like, I really hate that whole concept of like friend zone or like, like that the only valuable way to be in someone's life, if you have feelings for them, is romantically. But at the same time, I did appreciate his honesty when he said, this is hard and confusing. I appreciated the honesty there. And I didn't think he was actually like, you know, trying to make her feel bad or anything like that. And I think in many ways, I think he knows some of this is maybe on him because I don't think he's really been clear about still being in love with her. I think he's been acting like this is fine. This is fine. I think this is more about him saying, I've been acting like it's fine. It's, it's not. It's really tough. And so I think mostly I was feeling for him. But I think part of me was like, if she's so important to you, shouldn't she be in your life However, but I know that's not always how it goes down. Yeah, I think your playing up the honesty aspect is well said because I, I thought, you know, even though I've had a lot of issues with Hank, 
I, I noted, I really like him kind of calling Sarah out. Mm. But that feels like a harsh way to put it. And I don't think that's what he was doing. I think you're more accurate with saying he's just being honest. And I think that is what I liked. You know, she she drew a boundary in that moment mm-hmm. saying, I don't want to let you touch me because I'm worried it will give you the wrong idea. And so I think for him to say, I'm already confused. You've already crossed a boundary from where I'm standing. Mm-hmm. And if you are not aware of that, then I think you should be. I have you're, the wrong idea. <laughs> we finished this job three days ago, and you're just coming in and hanging out with me. Yeah. We're not working on your project anymore. You're just getting all this emotional support from me. And I'm assuming that means something that maybe you are not intending it to mean. Yeah. And I can easily see that. Yeah. And I don't think she was intending to lead him on. I did also wonder, though, has she been entirely honest with herself about why she broke up with Carl and honest about why she hired Hank. Was it purely for his professional expertise? And like I said, and isn't that project finished? Why are you still with him every day? Yeah. You know, and you raise a good point too. He has not been honest up to now about maybe why he's welcoming that. Yeah. Do you think Hank would be collaborating with any other photographer, especially <laughs> one as inexperienced as her? No. Nope. And subordinate to <laughs> Right. Her, you know? No way. Well, and, you know, great point about has she been honest with herself? Because I do have to admit that I think one thing Hank and I might have in common is that I, too, am confused. And I legit don't know how Sarah feels about Hank at this point in the, in the show. It really seemed... Like when he was massaging her shoulders, she was just uncomfortable, like not not because she doesn't feel safe with him or something like that. Of course not. But like just like, oh, no, awkward. I don't feel that way. But I'm like, doesn't she? I mean, she did break up with Carl, who's like a handsome doctor. And I just don't understand why you would do that. I just it doesn't check out. And so maybe the answer is she has just decided things are easier if Hank and I are apart. You know, we tried it, didn't work moving on. But I, I yeah, and, and then I'm like, does the show know? Like, does the show know if if Sarah's into Hank? Because they've very clearly, I think, shown us little moments of Hank never got over her. But I don't think they've shown us as many moments of Sarah not, never got over him. Yeah. What's very interesting to me about their dynamic, and I don't even know if they ever say this or, or hint at it, it's been too long, but you get the sense that she would have never been attracted to him or considered the thought of dating Hank, like had she been younger or her time in her life, like her attraction to him and this connection feels very specific to this moment in time and and where they're at. So like, I never felt like this, like insane chemistry between Sarah and Hank. It always felt like rooted in her need for stability and his need for like a fresh start. It never felt to me like, Oh my God, are they going to get together? <laughs> I was never, I was never doing that. And so like, I too like Hank and confused yeah. as to what's going on there. I also wonder if that confusion, knowing now that this is after his jump ball diagnosis, <laughs> his jump ball autism diagnosis, if there was any of that in mind when they were writing this scene, because, you know, as we know, people on the spectrum have a very hard time like with gray areas and you know relationships need to be defined and i almost wonder if he meant confusion in that sense too and that like what are we what is this relationship 
I genuinely, from a social standpoint, don't understand how to approach this. Yeah, that's well put. I think I agree with that chemistry thing, too. Something we've noticed is I think Sarah has learned a type of love, which is her taking care of someone who kind of doesn't have their shit together. And I think she learned it with Seth. Well, maybe she learned it from Zeke. You whoa, know? whoa. Um, but that's good. Seth, Seth needed her. Yeah. It wasn't just like, oh, they can coexist in their strong mm. unit. And then when she had Mark Sear, Jason Ritter. Incredible chemistry, sorry, but yeah. <laughs> incredible chemistry, but he didn't need her in order to have his life together. No. Nope. He had his life together on his own. And she seemed almost bored by that once Hank was sort of in the picture. Oh, here's someone. And then now here again, it has happened with Carl. Carl has his life together and just wants Sarah to share in it. And I think she thinks, well, there's nothing for me to do there. Hank needs me. Otherwise, he's going to drown in the stormy sea of life. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> That's beautiful. So it's weird. Like, her, her need for stability is almost like a need for instability in the other mm. person. Whoa. But that I think is what she views as, oh, this I understand. I know how to do this. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, and what's sad is I find it very believable, but like toxic. Like if I were Sarah's therapist, I would want to be like, let's examine why you're drawn to people who need you to take care of them. Yeah. Rather than people who want to be equals with you. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Zeke and the beginning of our conversation in this podcast is about how the very foundation of his relationship with Camille is basically inequality. I mean, like he made all the decisions and Camille just sort of went along with it. I know that's not the exact same kind of equality, but I am realizing like, you know, Mark Sear was very, um, I would say, progressive and really did look at like a relationship as, as being equals. And Carl at first wasn't. And that's when she was intrigued. You know, I do think that's really yeah. interesting when <laughs> when he seemed more like Zeke, just, you know, chasing women and, and seeming like kind of uh, he didn't take people seriously. And then he takes Sarah seriously and she's out. I don't know. <laughs> it's... Or maybe this was all forged in the opposition to Seth. When she was, you know, Drew's age, and was, as you said, not a great age for making sound judgments, and everyone had a problem with her relationship, and she was defending Seth, no, 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 I know what I'm doing, we're going to do this. You know, we've seen Camille say that she wishes they had said nothing about right. challenging her relationship with Seth, and maybe in a weird way, she still can't admit that she was wrong, that like she shouldn't have been with him. Maybe her whole life is a justification for I was right to stay with him. I have to stand by these people who need me. That's real love. Watch mm. me prove it over and over and over again. Wow. And really, I think it just makes her life worse. Yeah. <sighs> I also want to say I when you mentioned, you know, why does it have to be romantic between like her and Hank? Can there be no value to their relationship unless it's romantic? If they aren't going to be romantic, he may just need some time to adjust to that. I I've had two guys in my life who I developed feelings for and told them and they were not returned. And I had to not see them for a while. And yeah. I was very blatant about it. I'm like, I need to not hang out with you, talk to you for a while because 
I'm not in that headspace yeah. right now. Yeah. But I do want to be friends with you. So let me adjust my expectations and desires from this relationship. And now I'm friends with them. But. Yeah. Do you think Hank is capable of doing such a thing, Caleb? I don't know. He would have to know. I'm glad he said something in this episode, I think, because obviously I don't think he's ever going to pick up on it. Like, oh, this is not being returned. I need to change my expectation. If there's any chance of him doing that, I think it, like you said, it needs to be laid out, spelled out for him. This is the parameters of our relationship. You deal with that if you can. I feel like maybe the end of this episode is telling us that he could when he shows up for her after all. After saying, I can't do this, I can't be friends with you. And then he's there when she goes in for her meeting. That was one of my favorite Hank moments. I thought that was very big of him. And I think at that moment, I don't think he has any expectation of a romantic relationship. And so I think that was maybe his way of at least attempting it. You know, like she really matters to me. She's important, even if we're not together which I think would be quite big of him if that's where it ends up going and they don't just get back together in the next episode, which. Yeah. (laughs) I also thought it was really great of him to say, you know, whether they like your project or not, don't cry because you did good work. And that that is genuinely supportive and good advice. And Max, it made me think of auditions. Oh, God. Strangely enough, because I feel like, I mean, I cannot imagine the amount of auditions actors go on, the amount of times they make themselves vulnerable to other people's judgments and assessments. And I I think the only way you could ever do that is if you had an attitude of, as long as I am proud of what I present, I'm going to count this as a win. Mm. Because if you if you take it off of, I will only count this as a win if I get the job, the odds are so stacked against you i mean if i'm being totally honest like i never got there wow like i the years that i was auditioning even if i said like whatever happens in there it's it's gonna be right i'm proud of myself or it's gonna be great like i don't think i ever got to a place where i was like i'm just going in there and doing my thing I knew people who did, but it, that was just not how I operated. And I think it's why I had to get out because the the emotional toll of doing that over and over is just too great. Wow. Yeah, I don't think I could. And even as I'm saying it, I wonder if maybe the opposite is actually true. Like if you go in there and you're proud of what you present, well, that's when not getting the job would hurt. <laughs> if you weren't proud and they rejected you, you could go, well, that wasn't my best. Yeah. If I, I need to go in and do better. But if you think this is the best I can do, Whoa. maybe you just need to be like, I'm not invested. But that can't be the solution. I, I think you know what the solution is. I had one friend who loved auditioning. I did like regional theater with him and he genuinely loved to audition. And he would always say that it wasn't about like, oh, just going in and doing my best and whatever happens, happens. He was like, I look at it like a little mini, a mini performance every single time. And the goal of like going in that room is to like put on a fucking show (laughs) and that's all he cared about. So for him, like he was just having fun, which I think that was the key that I never unlocked because I just couldn't like shift into that mindset. 
but he was like, no matter if like he bombed or, or, or went in and booked it or didn't book it, he was like, oh, I'm just going and I'm putting on little shows today at, you know, Chelsea Studios or wherever he was. <laughs> oh, I love that. And, you know, that reminds me of something we said in a previous podcast about investing in the process, not the result. Yeah. Going in and putting on a performance yeah. is investing in the process of auditioning, not in the outcome of whether you get the job or not. So he's right. I mean, this podcast has helped me do that with like my my poetry because I used to really place my value on myself as a person, not even as a poet, as a person on like what I'd achieved and what I hadn't. And it was a very damaging approach uh, to all of it. And it led to me like comparing myself to other people and just all these really terrible ways to exist, to live. And over the last, I mean, my whole life, I mean, I'm trying all the time, like I think most people are, to, to be better, to be happier, to be healthier. And um, in the last few years, I think I've gotten a lot better with n- not tying my value as a person to what I've achieved. And this podcast has helped because the, the whole point is the process. Like this is, you know, not a step to anything else. It's not like this is our in to the podcasting world. This was our pandemic project and we're seeing it through. And it's been a joy to to do with, you know, one of my favorite people and, and getting to meet new people and, and have conversations with old friends. It, the whole process has been beautiful. And I think that has taught me, okay, writing the poems, that makes you feel like yourself. It's beautiful. Yeah, you try to send it out there into the world, but that doesn't, that doesn't matter. What defines you is writing, not whether or not the journal takes it. It helps. I don't know. Absolutely. Now, how might you feel if someone hired you to write a poem <laughs> yeah. and then either accepted it or didn't? I'm quite lucky in that I'm a high school teacher where publishing is not an expectation at all. It's just like a bonus. I, I have friends who are professors and they are like, kind of expected to meet like a quota. And so it's not just, they can just be like, this isn't my value and <laughs> they can disassociate. They're like, shit, I got to keep my job. You know, like I got to send more work out there ah, and all these things that aren't really in their control. And so that is in a way tied to money. And Sarah, <laughs> this is her livelihood. Poetry isn't mine, you know, and, and, you know, Max, you weren't just auditioning for kicks. Like that was, you know, trying to your livelihood and you, you know, were eventually like, I I guess that's too much. I can, it's too hard, like emotionally. I, I maybe a more traditional <laughs> paycheck would be good for yeah. And so I think that is quite different because that's pressure of a whole kind that I like really honestly can't relate to. That would be so hard to be Sarah and be like, I'm brand new at this. This is yeah. what I want to do with my life and how I want to earn my living. I don't know. What do you guys think of that? Yeah, I. I think something I can't relate to with Sarah is coming into that a little bit later in life. I think, I think of like my passion for theater as something that I've had since I was a child and there was never really any question. I think Caleb, you were similar in, in terms of where you saw music fitting into your life. So I think to come into a profession that is talent based later in life and not having had the chance to develop that talent and feeling behind is probably incredibly scary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like, I feel like I said this on the podcast before, but maybe I haven't. I say it so much in life, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. when the thing you love 
and something that you might do even if you weren't paid for it mm. becomes a thing that you are paid for, it does change your relationship with it. And yeah. I at least don't know of any way to avoid that. And it means that there are, you know, everyone hates their job some days. When I hate my job, it means I hate playing the piano, which is something that I love. Mm-hmm. And that is a weird feeling to have. Like, why am I hating this thing that I love? It makes me feel guilty, like I've wronged the piano somehow, oh. as if it were a person <laughs> who I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's a job. And then sometimes you have to just power through that and do it anyway. And I don't quite know how this relates to Sarah, other than it being a livelihood. It does make it something you can't just ditch unless you're going to replace it with something else. Like if it's, okay, I'm going to be the super of my building and bartend. And that's just it. Because then my, my heart and my spirit are not getting clobbered every time someone doesn't like what I'm doing. Also just steadiness. Like you said, reliability. That's something I still think of, even though I consider myself successful in my field it's still not reliable. I mean, I'm, I always have to think about how long does my current gig last and what comes after that? And will I be able to find something? And I, you know, I'm not terror stricken anymore that I won't find anything. I have a reasonable expectation of someone will hire you to do something. Yeah. But will it be enough? And will it get me to other goals in my life? Like, could I buy a house? Could I you know, have children off of this salary? Those are big questions, and if you don't have the dependency of a, a consistent paycheck, it can make them so hard to answer. That it's like, can I just have a, a normal job? <laughs> and maybe I don't have to love it in the same way, yeah. but it'll it'll get me to other places I want to go in other areas. It's hard. Yeah. And it's funny you say that because of all the people I think of from that part of my life, from you know when I did theater and when I was a performer you are probably the one who I trust to always be doing the thing, (laughs) no matter what. Like from an outsider's perspective, I think, oh, Caleb's just like solid. He's always going, he's always working. He's always has something going on. Whereas like when I was on the inside of it, I don't know what it looked like to an outsider, but I was always living with that fear of like, what if next year I don't work at all? What if, you know, I'm unemployed for six months straight. What do I do? But now that I'm on the outside, I look at, you know, someone like you, Caleb, and I'm like, oh, Caleb's like, has this incredibly consistent life as an artist that I felt like I could never unlock. Hmm. Wow. Ah, well, wow. and that probably says something about how we see ourselves and others just in general. Wow. You know, defining success for yourself rather than through the perception of others I think it's part of Julia's conflict, especially like with the, that group of moms. She's very preoccupied with how people are viewing her. And I thought it was funny that like in that scene with about the phone, that it was uh, completely something different. They weren't judging her for the things she was sure they were judging her for at all. Yeah, It was a mundane issue. It led to this fight, <laughs> which I think is just... Uh, so exhausting and frustrating to watch. Hi. Hey, the phone. The phone? Yes. So, I'm sorry. You can't do I that. I know. Joel. 
he was freaking out yesterday, and it's all my fault. What happened? I went to go pick him up, and I got the baseball schedule mixed up, so I went to the wrong field. So you show up at the cafeteria with a shiny new phone at lunchtime just to make up for that mistake? It wasn't like that. It's not a bribe. Listen to me. He was worried that you weren't going to pick him up that afternoon, and so I tried to reassure him. So I called you. Right. You didn't. I called you back. Texted me back an hour later, and by then he was you a total mess. You couldn't wait an hour to make this decision? I know. Yes, I'm sorry. Joel, that's ridiculous. Joel. He feels like we're going to let him slip through the cracks, you know? And I, I can't blame him with the way we've been communicating. Like, like you we, buying a I phone can't... without talking to me about it first. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. Okay, good. We're on I the same page that. with that part. You should have just seen him, Julia. He's melting down in front of me, and I feel like all these abandonment issues are coming back because up. Because you moved out. He's got, uh... Let's talk about the he's real got, reason. He's got your number, my number, and your parents' number in the phone. That's all he's allowed to communicate okay, with. Okay, he was texting with the baseball team on the way home. Okay, well, so he's not know. allowed to do that. Okay. I'll talk to him. You talk to him about that. You're doing the parenting right now. Oh, I'm so tired of fighting. I don't... Can we just stop? You're not willing to fight for anything. I think he can hear us. Okay, fine. That's real convenient. I'll see you later, sweetie. You just give me a call if you need anything. Julie. What did you think of that? I feel like Project Make This All Joel's Fault is definitely underway. <laughs> I've been so on Julia's side. or I mean, I've been so on Joel's side for almost the whole season. And then it seemed, like I said in the last episode, that now they're trying to make the issue like, well, Joel just needs to get over it. Yeah. You know, why is he not? Come, just come to the baptism. Yeah. Is it really complicated, Joel? You know, <laughs> is it? Is it super complicated? And, um, rather than Julia, you know, examining how she has contributed to any or all of this. And and in some ways, I think it's it's a very natural and okay way for the story to develop. Because I do think we saw Julia for a couple of episodes in a row really on her best behavior. And like anything that she could do to get Joel to change her mind, she was going to do. And so she wasn't going to bring up anything that was bothering her. Because then she might make Joel upset and he wouldn't come back. That's that done. seems to be changing in <laughs> yeah. her. Because now, now she's angry about the position she finds herself in and the decisions she's not included in and things that are affecting their kids that she feels like are not her fault. I felt like her best point in that argument was, oh, does Victor feel abandoned? I wonder why that is. Yeah. Which one of us left? Yeah. And I thought that's a little bit of a cheap shot but also kind of true. Yeah. Anyway, I believe that the longer someone is left in that sort of limbo area of, are we together? Are we apart? Are we possibly going to reconcile? Or is there no hope of that? Is this all my fault? Or is it a two-way street? I do feel like Joel is maybe playing with fire a little bit. If he doesn't clarify some of this stuff sooner, she's not going to be penitent forever. She's going to start to resent him. And that has clearly begun. And... Depending on what he wants, it may escape him before he can get it. Well put. Yeah, I kept thinking she sounds so harsh. And from an outsider's perspective, I, I was like, this is venomous. But then I really tried to get inside her head. And I thought, this feels right on time. Like, if, if this were me, I, yeah, I would be tired of, like, tiptoeing around and, and being on my best behavior. I, I would be hurt. And lashing out probably and so it felt very real 
and then, you know, I also wondered, does she resent to how he is often like, I don't know, a, a little critical of her parenting skills? Like when, when, you know, Sydney made the public uh, tantrum about wanting to spend the night at her house, even though it was Joel's night, he really read her the riot act. He was like, well, that's exactly what the counselor told us not to do. We need to be consistent. We need to communicate with each other. And then when he gets a phone for Victor, does she just think you hypocrite? You know, is she just so angry and like, you don't always do the right thing either. But I guess when you do it, it's just fine. And when I do it, I'm, you know, not being consistent or reliable. And, you know, maybe she just has had it there too. I don't know. You know, I can't believe I never thought about her having an inferiority complex in comparison to him ever. Yeah, I've never thought He was really good at being a stay-at-home parent. And she couldn't last however many months. Yeah. That must make her feel like absolute crap. Yeah. Now, that's not necessarily his fault. But. But. Yeah. That was one of the things that always irked me about their relationship or, or the way that their relationship was written from the beginning was this idea of, like, we were supposed to celebrate Joel for making this choice to be a stay-at-home parent, which is what many women do but because it's joel and he's hot and he's a good dad we were supposed (laughs) to give him a round of applause when she's really you know running the running the show yeah that's true i mean were we ever supposed to give christina a round of applause for Mm -hmm. doing the exact same thing in her household as joel did it's just we expect twice as many kids right yeah that's (laughs) that's true good point yeah then eventually three times. <laughs> well, yeah. like, you know what? They kept they And kept a adding. special needs. Yeah. 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 It Boy. is a good point. So that's, yeah, interesting. Another issue was raised in this episode that made me feel really bad about when my sisters were on and I joked that Victor was <laughs> responsible for his parents' separation. Victor, yeah. put the phone away, please. No, I'm texting dad. I'm allowed to text dad. Not at the table. It's an emergency. I left my baseball mitt in his car. That's not an emergency. I'm gonna text Dad. Put it away. Stop it. I'm putting it away. away. I'm putting it away. Hey, knock it off, you guys. How come Victor gets a phone and I don't? Stop. It's not your phone. I don't care. Stop shouting. You shouted all the time ever since Victor got here. It's all your fault. No. Everything was good until you got here. Sydney. Mom and Dad, oh, he's got along. Now they hate each other. Sydney, knock it off. It's all your fault. I hate you. Is it horrible if I say I think Sydney's annoying? <laughs> no. No, it's a lot of people's opinion. Yeah. It, my memory of her was that I found her just annoying all the time. After a certain point. She was pretty cute, like seasons one and two. And then that's so not fair, I felt like became her catchphrase. And it's like, <laughs> I don't want Sydney to just come on and say, that's so not fair. And then sleep. But I have evolved on her. I guess I'll use this as my opportunity to say this. Yeah. And a lot of times I find myself really at least understanding where she's coming from. And this time I especially did. And I I kind of credit that to Savannah Page Ray's performance. Like I loved Mm -hmm. when the sound kind of cut out and you saw Julia dragging her away and Sydney was just crying. She wasn't angry. She was sobbing. And I thought, of course, Sydney would feel that way. And it is awful that she said that to him. She should absolutely be made to understand why that is cruel 
and why it's incorrect. Mm -hmm. But I just thought she's a child trying to make sense out of what is happening in her family. And, you know, Julia doesn't know. Joel doesn't know exactly what's happening. As far as Sydney is concerned, there have been two huge changes in her family in like the last year. And one preceded the other. Mm-hmm. So she's just connecting dots. And yeah. and she's really in, in pain, I think. Yeah. And I but I also I I felt really horrible for Victor too, because oh, yeah. I think Victor would be connecting the same dots. Even if she hadn't said anything, I think he might have to wonder, did I come in and destabilize this? Is this my fault? And then to have her say it would just make him think, yep, I was right. That's what I thought. I felt the exact same way. I mean, I think probably what the audience is supposed to think, I'm guessing, is how horrible. No, she should not say this. Poor Victor. And that was my first impulse. And then my second was, from her perspective, I think she just thinks she's telling the truth. Like when she, the line that really got me was when she she looks at Julia and she says, you know, it's true. I thought, damn, that is like hardcore. She's not just ranting. She's like, I'm a truth speaker here. I'm, I'm <laughs> saying what's really going on here and no one else will say it. And I, I actually think there is some truth in what she said. Like, I mean, I, I think on, on, in one way, not at all, but in another way, I mean, I, I do think that those huge like changes, the family couldn't figure out how to adapt. And so that doesn't make it Victor's fault, but there's, I don't know that they would be in this position if they had kept with the status quo of hmm. not bringing in another child and just raising their their one child and you know then julia wouldn't have had her meltdown and quit work and they would have you know they still had communication yeah, it exposed issues. issues they already had that's it exactly yeah and so i think maybe what it is is they would have not been separated right now but i wonder if other issues would have happened like growing resentful like joel had some resentment about not working and you know if if he was supposed to stay at home even when you know Sydney's getting older etc cetera, etc cetera. so yeah I don't I don't mean it like she's right and it's totally okay she said that I mean I agree with you Caleb it's completely cruel there's she never should she should have consequences for that you don't make your brother feel that way I mean that's just awful but I I do think she wasn't saying it to be petulant which I think she has sometimes in the past I think She's in pain, like you said. And I think she's trying to understand. Well, Victor brings this up with his dad in what I thought was a really great scene. I don't want this phone anymore. You can take it back to the store. Uh, okay. Well, if I take it back, I'm not getting you an upgrade. No, you can take it back. I don't, I don't want it. What's going on? Do you think if you take the phone back, mom will stop being mad at you? Buddy, I'm, I messed up, okay? Not you. I, uh, I should have communicated more with your mom, and that's my fault. We're just trying to figure the situation out, you know, the adults too. No, but is it my fault that you and mom got separated? Absolutely not. Because Sydney said that before I moved in with you guys, everything was better. Okay, well, first of all, you didn't just 
move in with us. You understand me? You came to be our son. That means that no matter what happens, no matter what you do, for the rest of your life, your mom and I are not gonna stop loving you. No matter what. I have to say, I really yeah. loved that line, you came to be our son. Like, I thought that's the most perfect thing he could have said. You didn't just move in with us. You came to be our son. It was beautiful. Yeah. It's so heartbreaking. Just the, the simplicity of saying, like, thinking the phone is the root cause of the issue. And maybe if we undo that, it'll fix the problem. It's just, oh, it just tears me apart. I hate it. Yeah. yeah. I wrote down. I could watch parents reassure their kids that they love them all day long. I, just think, <laughs> I, I think it's so foundational to having a happy and fulfilling life that it's like profound yeah. and it's happened a few times, but to say like, no matter what you do for the rest of your life, yeah. we will love you. Like that is what parents are for. And I just love seeing that i mean i hate that victor was doubting it right but of course he would the added layer of victor not being their biological child makes it even more yeah touch you know just because we as humans like biologically are programmed to care for our offspring and the fact that he's extending that sort of level of love and support to somebody that they chose to bring in to their lives is I'm a huge Joel fan. <laughs> yeah. I love Joel. Well, and that like, you know, Sydney wouldn't be able to remember a time without Julia and Joel in it. Whereas right. Victor, a year ago, they weren't, well, maybe not a year ago, two years ago. Yeah. They were not a part of his life. So for him to trust that would take so much more than it does for Sydney too. Yeah. Like, yeah. So I think it was so vital that Joel said that. I'm a big Joel fan too. Me too. I also, it makes me realize that Sydney's deepest fear is different from Victor's deepest fear. And that doesn't invalidate either of their fears. You know, I feel like Sydney's is like this disillusion of her very formerly stable family, you know, and, and this, she is currently living in her biggest fear, being shuttled back and forth between these homes. And Victor took that pretty much in stride. And I think it's because that was not his biggest fear. His biggest fear is being abandoned altogether. And like, mm. is it a possibility that if you two aren't a couple, that you won't consider me your son anymore? Uh, you, you know, I, like, I think that's where he's going. Sydney doesn't question that for a minute. Again, I don't say that to diminish her feelings. We all feel what we feel based on... <laughs> our experiences and, and, you know, who we are, it's not a competition, but I do think that's like the fundamental reason why she shouted what she did, those cruel things, because she, this is her nightmare. And then it reveals Victor's nightmare. It's just, it was a really good storyline, I think, because th this, this whole season long disillusion of, of this relationship has had high moments and low moments. And I, I, I thought, well, I guess they've all been low moments as far as, you know, emotionally. <laughs> but I mean, like uh, storytelling wise, I think this was a high moment as far as like, it was just very, very effective and really showed how this is affecting 
those kids. I was also moved in Victor and Joel's scene by Joel including Julia in that assurance. Yeah. It made it very clear to me how parents, even going through something like this, could, in some instances, very easily put the kids first. And I understand that in some situations that can be difficult, but it seemed like it was very natural for Joel to speak for Julia in that moment and say, no matter what your mom and I Mm -hmm. will always love you. And I feel like if you could have like played this clip for Julia, she would have no problem. She's like, yes, cosine, like tell him that that is absolutely for certain. And I watch it and think, of course, like in that moment, whatever they're arguing about wouldn't matter at all. They would both agree, oh, he shouldn't feel this way because I'm not abandoning him and will not. Yeah. And I thought, gosh, that's really wonderful. And it is nice that even though there have been some like ugly moments with what they say to each other, it doesn't seem at least now like one of those relationships where it has devolved into them being mean about each other to the kids, which I think is very common in life sometimes. Like the bitterness seeps through. They've really, I think, done a pretty good job of not doing that with the kids. You know, maybe it's a little sad that Sydney hasn't gotten a moment that elicits the kind of sympathy that Victor gets in this episode. Her nightmare expresses itself as whining and complaining. (laughs) She had a little bit in the last episode, like, if you're just taking a break, when is it going to be over? But even then, it kind of sounded like a whine. When is it going to be over? But I think if she had a moment, like, chucking her into bed and her just asking questions and saying, like, I really don't like this... I think everyone would feel for her. She's a child. Yeah. But I have to imagine that's what it's like to grow up in a household that is, you know, taken in another child is no matter what you're going through, it's never going to be as bad as where that child came from or what the child had to go through. So I'm sure it'd be very frustrating to feel like your needs were always laughable compared to the emergency that was happening 24 hours inside your own home. Yeah. 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 It's kind of the like (laughs) the guilt of privilege. Like, Mm. oh, my problems are always going to pale in comparison. They're real Mm -hmm. to me, though. And yet it feels like, well, can I never express the pain of my problems? Well, to your parents, you can. Yeah. (laughs) Like they'll be there for you. It's not like you almost said, Melissa, like it's not a competition. Yeah. I think the trouble with privilege is thinking your pain then supersedes someone else's. And so for her to take it out on Victor that way, that's that's when it's unacceptable. You know, she is allowed to feel her pain, but she shouldn't handle that pain by causing it for someone else. She is a child, but, you know, that's still that's the lesson to learn. Like, I know sometimes people have this attitude of like, well, I guess I should just feel bad that I'm white or I guess I should feel bad that I'm, you know, straight or male or like whatever the majority, you know, whatever. And it's like, no, that's, I don't think anyone's point is just to make you feel bad. I think it's, you have to recognize privilege so that you can make the world better and not worse, you know, like so that you can, I don't know, look out for things or like, 
like I, I never felt guilty about um, being able to talk about my relationship with my husband like openly in front of my students, you know, I mean, appropriately, of course, but like, you know, Mark and I went to this concert the other day, not, you know, not something else. Um, but like, <laughs> I remember at the beginning of my teaching career, this is year 17 for me, thinking about how like friends of mine who are gay, like might have to be more careful in just mentioning their lives and so I don't think the takeaway from that was supposed to be oh I should just feel bad that I can have this privilege no it's this is why you try to make the world better so everyone has that you know and and I think people miss the point you know like they just miss the point like the whole point is to make people feel bad and that's not it if you don't recognize your privilege then you don't see that the world is unjust and you do nothing about it that's anyway little soapbox moment um you know if Sydney yeah Sydney doesn't understand other people's pain she's just gonna keep being cruel to her brother and that's not okay yeah yeah but, you know, you said that. Th- are we ready to move on? Because Segway. Oh, go for it. Segway. Segway is that if Sydney had a moment that would make you really understand her humanity like Max has in this episode, because sometimes I'll be honest, I can forget about his humanity a little bit when he is so mm. short with people or, or you know, Again. Me too. Yeah. So there it is. Take it away. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. I'm, <laughs> I'm probably never... going to remove you saying segway. <laughs> you can't say you're breezy. That negates the breezy. <laughs> yes. Well, first and most pressing question. Did your parents ever chaperone a field trip that you went on? No. Me neither. Yes. Oh, yes. really? Yeah, I know. Actually, it was my fault because <laughs> I remember the chaperone like list came out. I think it was like in kindergarten or first grade, and my parent, my mom wasn't on it. And I was in, a, I think, I was in a phase of of my childhood where I was just very clingy, and I cried at school. Oh. <laughs> she wasn't going to come to the field trip, and I think they called her and were like, "You got to come, otherwise, <laughs> we're going like- to have to deal with this all day." That's like the exact opposite of what Max does to Christina, where he's like, you're on this list and I need you to be off of the list. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well. One more mundane observation before I get to the substance of the storyline. Mr. Knight says Christina needs to come down here to get Max. <laughs> but they were in Sacramento, which is north of <laughs> Berkeley, which to me would be up. Uh, anyway, well, you I, know I would what? say up. My little nitpick of this, it wasn't really a nitpick. It was just like, whoa, a realization was when Christina mentions to Max that they've been driving for two hours. Um, And I did look up the difference between Sacramento and Berkeley, and it seemed like it would be more of like 75 minutes. But that was another observation. I (laughs) That's fun. Um, (laughs) But I also thought, okay, I already thought, ooh, 75 minutes of Max sitting on that lobby in the hotel and you know because he calls and he's there and then they show up and he's there and now I'm like it's more than two hours you're telling me so and I guess I'm like okay I guess he's just that's how long he's sitting on the lobby but then I guess I'm really impressed that Mr. Knight is like just hunkered down with him that whole time that was telling him about his PhD (laughs) he never (laughs) wastes an opportunity to bring it up apparently (laughs) Yeah. That's funny. I also was under the impression they were going camping, and I wondered why they were in a hotel at all. That's maybe a small thing. Like, 
anyway, whatever. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good thing this central scene we're going to talk about is so good because there's a lot of holes around it. Also, I'm now thinking, you know, where was Nora for all this? Who was what? You know, she didn't seem to be in the car with them. Oh, that's true. And they're not going to leave her home alone. No. And it seemed like it was late enough that she was probably already asleep. Yeah. I mean, my I guess their catch all excuses. Well, we took it to your parents. Yeah, that's just what we do. Yeah. So anyway, she's enjoying the fire pit as well. <laughs> it's a good fire pit. <laughs> and then it just pans over to Nora is like sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> She's been with us the whole time. Anyway. Yeah. Well, among parenthood aficionados, I feel like this scene is up there among like Amber in the junkyard in terms of its infamy, maybe, or notoriety as like a top five emotional moment and funnily enough when we asked max to be a guest we didn't tell him which episode we had in mind but he said oh yeah i'd be happy to be a guest although if it's that episode with max's field trip i i may need to like emotionally prepare for it and i said that is the episode. <laughs> it was a cr- Matt, and you thought Caleb was messing with you, right? You were like, "There's what are the odds?" I thought you were you were playing a joke, or it wasn't actually that. Episode, but no, truly, out of when I think about this entire series, that's the scene. It's the, the scene that sticks out. And I did. I had to go back. I watched. I went back immediately when you asked me, and I watched the clip just to see. To my earlier point, does it still make me emotional? And it does. So maybe I wasn't as much of a, a wreck back <laughs> watched the original series as I thought. Or maybe I'm still a wreck. I don't know. It's one or the other. I don't know. <laughs> it made me cry both times I watched it. Let's subject ourselves to it <laughs> once more. Why do all the other kids hate me? Honey, nobody hates you. Nobody hates you. Is it because I'm weird? Honey, you're not weird, okay? I think sometimes, I don't know, kids don't understand your Asperger's and they misinterpret it as being weird or whatever. But you're not weird. You're you're so smart and you're hilarious. If I'm and smart and hilarious, then why do they hate me? They, they don't hate you. I promise. Trevor peed in my canteen. I'm gonna kill him. He said he did it because I'm a freak. I am a weirdo freak. You're not a freak. I think he's right. No, he's an asshole. He's an idiot. You're not a freak, honey. I think I am a freak. I try to understand them, but I can't. Asperger's is supposed to make me smart. But if I'm smart, then why? Why don't I get why they're laughing at me? They all do it, even the nice kids. Even Micah. And I don't understand why. I don't understand. Okay, buddy. Okay. 
You're not allowed to be without a seatbelt in a moving vehicle. I don't care. I don't like being hugged. I don't care. I, I, I don't like being hugged. I know you don't. I just want you to listen to I me. I don't like being... Shh. I love you, but... Okay, I love you so, so much. It's okay. You know what it is? The, it's the I'm going to kill him that mm. gets me every time. Every yeah, single time. quick it is. So quick. Yeah. But also, uh, just, it would be so easy to deliver that line in a way that was, like, too aggressive. or it, It's a it's a masterclass line reading. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> from him. Moment. And just, like, the protectiveness and, and the love that are living in there that gets me every single time I hear it. You're right. Yeah. That is a really good line reading. It, 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 it It's very reactive. You know, it's like you can't blame him for saying a first reaction, you know, and yeah, it's there it is. And also the the construct of being in a car. Yeah, I, I've enjoyed. I mean, I feel like I always enjoy it. And it's something in life I always enjoy when you're like sharing a room with someone, not like in the same bed, but like. I'm in one bed and they're sleeping on the floor or something like late night conversations where you're not even looking at each other. Yeah. And I feel like those are some of the deepest conversations I've ever had in my life where it's like, we're both just staring at the ceiling and spilling our hearts out. And in this scene that you got to see all three of their faces at once simultaneously and see how they were all reacting to this. And I was also taken more than I have been in a long time with how good Max Burkholder is (sighs) as Max. And like, we gripe about the character so much that I'm like, I hope I don't lose the admiration for how good he is to have to do a scene this emotional for starters. I mean, just that alone is so hard, but then as a character who doesn't demonstrate and display that emotion in a neurotypical way, Mm -hmm. you know, Sydney is amazing in her scene, but she gets to cry and scream and contort her face into sobbing, as do Adam and Christina in this scene. Yeah. And Max is kind of stone-faced through it all. Hmm. Like, wow, not to have any of those tools to help convey what Max is feeling in that moment would be so hard, and he does it so well. But I think what he does so well is is the frustration of it all, right? Like, I think the tools that Adam and Christina have used with him up until this point is trying to almost convince him like he's, like, nothing's wrong with him. No, you're hilarious. You're, You're smart. You're, you know, Asperger's makes you great. And he's, you know, it's the first time they've sort of been confronted with him saying, you know, if it makes me so great, and why is everybody laughing at me? Even the nice kids, that <laughs> that's horrible. Yeah. yeah. So to hear sort of his frustration with what I just experienced and what you've explained to me are so misaligned is heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. Two things. Number one, to speak to that, I feel like something that often makes, especially like the quote unquote nice kids, have empathy is like understanding that you're hurting a person. And I wonder if the fact that Max has trouble showing emotion leads some of these kids to believe that Max couldn't get his feelings hurt, that it's impossible. Um, he does, you know, and, and I wonder if that adds to the bullying and the cruelty is that usually you say something cruel and it has some sort of effect. And then maybe you feel guilty when you see the effect and you back off. Maybe they're like, 
there's no effect. So we keep going. And I mean, I, I think that's horrific, but I, I believe it actually. And, and I wonder if that's why this is happening. I mean, Micah used to be his friend and feels hurt by things Max has said and maybe thinks, well, Max doesn't even, you know, the whole time they hung out, I wonder if he ever saw vulnerability from from Max the way that we're all seeing now in this scene. Yeah. Yeah. I just briefly want to add that him including Micah, I had another thought like Drew and Amber playing that song. Yeah. That I thought this benefits from us having being so deep in the series yeah. that we know who Micah is, even though he's not in this episode and hasn't been in an episode in a really long time. Yeah. To say even the nice kids and then recall someone that we know who has only ever been like angelic. Yeah. Ugh. I thought, oh gosh, that's salt in the wound. Yeah. It was very effective. Yeah. And then real quick, I also wanted to just agree with you, Caleb, about how good the acting is. You know, I mean... We have wondered before, like, oh, but the you know the actor playing the character is neurotypical, so maybe this isn't it's you know. But I I, I want to make it clear. I mean, that doesn't negate the performance. And I, as we're like talking about this, I'm like, I don't think in the entire series there's one false note ever. Like, I don't think that. Max Burkholder ever plays this character like a caricature, you know, like I don't think he ever once goes too far or feels not believable. And that's amazing. I mean, especially for a child actor, that must have been such a difficult role to play and to play it with such authenticity. I mean, is really quite incredible. Yeah. And continuing with the idea of like the being in the car thing. I think because they have these sort of barriers up, you know, none of them are looking at each other for the bulk of the scene. Then when Christina unbuckles and really forcefully breaks that barrier, and then he's saying, I don't want to be hugged. And she says she doesn't care. It just, it's constructed so well, I think, that the emotional power of it just keeps escalating. And I also want to say the, the act that they used to demonstrate the cruelty of the kids, I think was really well chosen because it did feel brutal when he said it. I thought that is, that's not just mean, that's cruel. That's horrible. Yeah. And feels like it viscerally violates someone's humanity or their dignity. Because presumably, I mean, he discovered that from taking a drink. Right, I, think. I imagine. That is, <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's probably criminal. Yeah. I, but I don't know. And then for the kid who did it to respond by not apologizing or being sheepish, but saying, yeah, I did it because you're a weirdo freak or like whatever Max was saying. He said it was because of this. I'm like, God, to double down in that way and then yeah. follow it up with just cruel comments that that almost seems as unthinkable as the act itself like to do it with such audacity i don't and yet i kind of i believe it like yeah especially i think it was a wise choice that it happened on a field trip Mm -hmm. i thought you get a bunch of adolescent boys together away from home away from their parents in a kind of heightened situation and you get that group think going and peeing in someone's canteen and then they taste it. Mm. Yeah, everyone would laugh. I mean, like, it feels like 
I'm sure a lot of those kids, when they reflect on that in their everyday routine, will look back and go, my God, why did I laugh at that? That was horrible. But in that setting, I think, yeah, you go along. Isn't that hilarious? I've never thought of this before, but you're so right, Caleb. Like, they probably will go home and feel bad about it. But like, what I'm now thinking is this will haunt them like decades from now. Like when they look back on... I hope. <laughs> yeah, it should. It should. But like, it's going to be like a formative thing, not just for Max, but for those kids as well. You know, I imagine most of them will grow up and be pretty nice people. Like, I know that's a weird thing to say, but like, we have to remember that like people who do, like, like people who bully, like they grow up and become adults and go like get office jobs. They're just like people, uh, you know, and, and, like, I know so many people who say they really regret certain things from their adolescence, and this would be one of those things. I mean, I, I guess maybe some of them grow up and become horrible adults, too, but I'm, I'm guessing more likely they're going to grow up and just be like, oh, my God, that was horrific. And if they ever see Max Braverman, like, out <laughs> again, the really brave people will, like, go apologize. They'll say, I saw you from across the room. And I got to tell you, I'm so sorry for how we treated you. And most of them will probably avoid eye contact, I imagine, and be like, oh, God, <laughs> pretend he doesn't see me. Like, I, I can't believe I'm having these thoughts, but your comment made me think of that. It's wild. And what I loved about Christina holding Max was that I have no idea if that was the right thing to do. And I don't think she knew either. Like, to be comforting your son, who is clearly not comforted by that, but it's all she knows to do. Uh, that was just and maybe she needs it i mean yeah 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 it seemed like she couldn't stop herself yeah yeah i don't blame her at all i just i thought what an interesting dynamic where she's doing the thing that feels natural to her and it doesn't feel natural to him and she's like i don't even care i'm just this is what i know to do this is all i can think to do i feel like their whole journey with him has been them struggling to understand him yeah and even in this moment where they desperately need to come in and and be supportive parents she still has that need to i guess comfort him in the only way she knows even if it's not what he needs and the look on adam's face as this is happening and he's having to still drive the vehicle (laughs) and he can't he can't engage even though i'm sure he's feeling the exact same impulse to yeah. unbuckle and comfort his son it just it's a enormously powerful i always get the sense that you know adam was kind of a cool guy growing up or maybe one of the popular kids so i remember when i saw that i sort of was wondering i wouldn't put it past like adam to have in middle school bullied someone and oh. i wonder what memories might be coming back to him or, or experiences he might regret now you know because having a child on the spectrum opens up, you know, I'm sure channels of empathy that you hadn't already developed. So I wonder what was running through Adam's head in that moment. Wow. That's a really perceptive comment. Cause I'm thinking now about the, the comments that Adam has made in the past about wanting to like make friends with cool parents and not the lessings. Yeah. And, you know, he even made the comment like, so we're relegated to the short bus, which of course we were like, that is a fascinating comment for someone to make who is... <laughs> The father of someone was, you know, it was just, wow. Yeah. It is a good point. And, you know, I'm haunted by two memories of mean things I did to other kids. And I do not think that I was a bully. I genuinely don't think that I was a bully. No, I can't. But I remember in second grade, I threw sand on a kid in the class on the playground. Wow. And I'm still haunted by that. And then in high school, I told a kid who was not very popular 
and was annoying me in the moment, I said, go away. No one likes you. Oh, wow. And I, to this day, feel bad about both of those things. Wow. I mean, and as I should, they were wrong. Yeah. But I can't imagine what I would feel if I peed in someone's canteen. Right, right. No one likes you. Was objectively true. I'm kidding. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I learned from it. Nothing. Those were, those were words, you know? It's like, yeah, sure, those words stick with you and and grow into insecurities, but it's, it's the aggression and, like, peeing in someone's canteen is just, like, violent. Yeah. Yeah. The thing I really remember that I look back on and, and feel really bad about is that like I wasn't very popular, but I, I, I don't know that I would say I was unpopular. I mean, I had really good friends. Like in, in some ways, I actually think it was this thing I thought was a huge burden was actually like a huge blessing. Like I had genuinely good friends like Jay, you know, like who are still my friends now. But while Jay was so comfortable with us, like our place in the social hierarchy or whatever, I just was like, I, why am I not a cheerleader? You know, I was like, why, why doesn't the most popular boy in school love me? Like what, you know? Uh. And uh, anyway, I remember in middle school, there was this girl who was like universally picked on. And I don't think I ever picked on her, but I certainly never defended her or said to anyone don't say that I was always so grateful that they were not talking about me and I felt like as long as there are people like lower on in the social hierarchy then okay I'm okay and it was just so self-centered that like mindset if that makes sense and now to like yeah I mean I've felt bad about that for a long time but it's really interesting you know to like watch Max in this moment and be like well he's that kid so maybe some of those nice kids are like thank god it's not me you know and and that, yeah. you know, Micah might even be thinking that, you know, perhaps he felt like he was that kid. And then, oh, now Max and I aren't friends anymore. Not me anymore. And, you know, it's a hard time for everyone. But boy, it's especially hard for that kid who has to like bear the brunt of everyone, you know, it's like either cruelty or insecurity or, or I don't know. It's just awful. And I think you're so right about it, it reminding us about his humanity, because in that moment, watching Max struggle with that, I was like, do it. Build him his own school. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I he was, deserves I was it. never more on board with <laughs> yeah. that idea than I was in that moment, which I, it's still probably a preposterous thing to do, yeah. but I was like, do it. Get I, him away from these monsters. He needs to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Very effective scene is beautifully done. And, you know, just like a technical thing, because like I kind of wondered why Adam, the character, didn't pull over. But I totally understood why Parenthood, the show, was like, Adam cannot pull over um, because it is more effective with Christina going back there and Adam being helpless and just driving. You know, if he pulled the car over and they both went into the back it would be too much. It would be like a full house moment or something, you know, like the music yeah. would swell and everybody's comforting him. This is so much more effective that, she, you know, it's almost a little bit dangerous to break the rule and take off the seatbelt, go back there. And, and, and Adam can't do anything. And that's his, that's his worst nightmare um, is, is not being able to help his family and feeling out of control and impotent. And so I just think, yep, that's, there it is. Like that was yeah. just, Yeah. And, you know, you that just makes me realize it answers a question I had when watching the show about why did they turn the radio on mm. before this and not the characters, 
you know, that Max doesn't want it to be quiet. Right. I thought, well, that makes sense. But I thought, why is the show doing this? Is it just for that? Hearing it without the visual makes me think the music of the underscore of that scene eclipsing the radio, I think, was more powerful than it entering from silence. Well put. I think to have the radio made it feel everyday and casual. Mm -hmm. Oh, just listen to the radio. And then the more serious music comes in and eventually overtakes it rather than we're sitting here in silence waiting for this dramatic revelation. Yeah. All departments working together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to make the scene really it, land. Yeah. It does. It's lights out. It's one of their best, I think. This episode to me didn't feel like it had an obvious theme. And like I said, it felt very light on plot, but still really good. Yeah. One thing I did kind of notice, though, in all the storylines was validation. Characters either wanting it or needing it. Sarah needed professional validation. And then I thought maybe Hank needed personal validation. I think so. Too. Yeah. Victor needed validation. Amber sort of validated Drew's heartache. Yeah. Camille, I thought, validated Zeke's reluctance to sell the house. Yeah. And then Christina and Adam tried to validate Max. I th- I think you nailed it. I think that's it exactly. <laughs> that's really good. And here and here the episode's called the offer. <laughs> <laughs> that's why when you told me it was the offer, I was like, that doesn't seem to encapsulate at all uh-huh. what is happening in this episode. Or and I guess like when you're writing a TV show, you just have to pick something and and run with it to get the script out. But I was surprised to learn that that's what they decided to go with. Yeah. yeah. I was surprised that I, because I often go with the episode title when I'm like thinking of like, what was this about? Yeah. And I thought, well, an offer clearly refers to the offer on the house in a very literal sense. And I thought, surely, but offer has more meanings than that. So surely it applies to at least one of the other storylines. I couldn't find a single instance, I thought, of like, oh, well, this character is offering this to the other. Like, not really. Was Hank think. offering himself to Sarah in a way? I mean, maybe. maybe. Uh, it's a reach, though. Uh, the validation yeah. thing makes a lot more sense. Um, but I think it would be a pretty terrible title to just Amber be like, offered to be a backup singer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think it would be a terrible um, title, though. Validate me, like that would that would really. Trevor offered Max his urine. Oh, oh no, that's terrible. Oh. That's terrible. Oh. No, but it does feel nice to laugh because that was a dark place we all went to. It was, yeah. yeah. So, well, Max, I think we did it. We did it. And we did it with your help. Yeah. I just have to ask though, did you because this episode is known for the same famous Max scene. Did me being named Max have anything to do with <laughs> this episode? It didn't. We we had no grand reasoning. No. We were just looking ahead and like, okay, who for this one? Oh, my friend Max. Raping the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> but I do. You're right. I'm <laughs> but I, I do think the universe might have wanted you to be on here for, a, yeah. I mean, like literally in the whole time we've done this, it's the only time I think that anyone has ever said something specific about an episode that, that we were doing, like, like without even knowing that was the episode they were, it was just like kind of yeah. wild how that worked out. So I think it's perfect that 
that you ended up here. But yeah, it's true. We weren't thinking about it. I think we were just like, we haven't had him on yet. And you keep saying I should ask him. And so there it is. But or is it because Caleb, I work at Google, so I've I've hacked your your emails and I, I knew. <laughs> you knew I knew I, had... I saw their Google Drive document. <laughs> Man. Well now I think that's what it was. <laughs> uh, just kidding, right? <laughs> you can all check us out on social media. We're Parenthood Pals on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Thanks for checking us out. And you can find all of our information on our website, parenthoodpals.com. Thanks again to Max Paulman for joining us. Thank you, Max. It was wonderful. Thank you, guys. It was so much fun. Yay. <laughs> and thanks to all of you for listening. Until next time, may God bless and keep you always. And may your wishes all come true. <laughs>